Well, the day has finally come after five trials, a harrowing sea journey in a hurricane and a shipwreck on the island of Malta. The Apostle Paul, he finally arrives at the imperial capital of Rome. And it's here with Paul under house arrest for two years, but free to preach the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike, that Luke's glorious tour of gospel expansion from, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth uh, comes to its conclusion. <clears throat> and, and though there's a, a great deal of travel and, and Mediterranean geography in this last chapter, chapter 28, there's a lot of theology too, particularly as it relates to the Jewish response to the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. It taps into a much larger biblical theme. The Jewish response to the gospel, of course, is negative. Uh, by and large, it's disbelieving. And, and this negative, culpable response to the preaching of the gospel carries over into the conclusion of our lesson today. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 9. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Romans chapter 10. Then the week following, the last of the video lessons, Lord willing, Romans chapter 11. Those three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, are really, they're one unit and they deal with one topic. The sovereign salvation plan of God for Jews and Gentiles, past, present, future, which is precisely the note on which Luke leaves off in, in Acts 28. So it's really wise for us to trace out that broader biblical theme. It's what God intends, and it's, it's how he wants us to be reading our Bibles. Uh, and again, Lord willing, these will be the last Sunday video lessons ever. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to discuss today uh, compatibilism, and I've taught on compatibilism before many times at U City. I think it's uh, I think a good understanding of this teaching is a hallmark of mature, healthy Christianity. It provides I, I provide a definition on on page one of your handout, <clears throat> uh, the second topic division that you see there, and so I want you to keep this in your back pocket at all times. Over the next three weeks, we're going to keep coming back to this, but you can see the definition. The Bible as a whole, and sometimes in specific texts, presupposes or teaches that both of the following propositions are simultaneously true and are mutually compatible. God is absolutely sovereign. Human beings are morally responsible creatures. And the rest of the handout that you see, those two pages, uh, it's all related to compatibilism in one form or another. Don't try to read the whole thing at once. You're just going to get indigestion. Uh, but the plan is, until we meet for corporate worship in Christie's Pitts Park for our, our special uh, Lord's Supper service on, on the 20th of June, we're thinking it might be, uh, we're going to work our way through this. Okay, Acts chapter 28, the final chapter. Uh, the shipwrecked men, they've spent three months now on the island of Malta, and so probably from mid-November to uh, mid-February, and now the navigation of the Mediterranean Sea can begin again. So chapter 28, verse 11. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead, figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. And the twin gods, Castor and Pollux, they're sons of Zeus, and they were regarded as deities responsible for ensuring the smooth sailing of ships. So Castor and Pollux are the, god of, the gods of navigation, 
and and the and the patron of seafarers. And and obviously this is that like, you have to think. Well, why would Luke include that little detail? You know, this is this is a deliberate ironic touch on Luke's part. It's a it's like a Christian inside joke. You know, Paul's safety on the high seas has nothing to do with the whims of these false gods, right? It has everything to do with the benevolence and providence of uh, Paul's sovereign God. And, and the last chapter just made that abundantly clear. Now Luke plots the remaining part of the journey to Rome. First, they sail from Malta. You can look at your map here in a northeasterly direction to Syracuse. That's the capital of Sicily, where they stay for three days. That's verse 12. Then they sail farther north and put in at Regium on the toe of Italy. That's in verse 13. The following day, they sail on with the benefit of a southerly wind, and they make such excellent progress that they travel almost 200 miles to Putila, which is in the Gulf of Naples. That's in verse 13. So now their sea voyage has come to an end, and I'm sure they were all very glad to be putting into port, though maybe not the prisoners who are with Paul, because this means they're now <laughs> they're just one step closer to dying a terrible death in the arena. They're condemned criminals. In verse 14, we read that they stayed in Putila for one week with some Christian brothers and sisters. Why such a long layover, we're not told. But this final part of the journey to the imperial capital, it's by land. Uh, they'd be traveling now along the, the very famous Appian Way. The Appian Way was a road which led straight north to Rome. It was the oldest, straightest, and most perfectly made of all the Roman roads. So look at verse 14b. And so we came to Rome. But this is, this is great. I love this. Christians in Rome had heard of their coming. And a delegation from the church had been sent out to meet Paul and Luke and Aristarchus. Uh, some of them traveled 30 miles to see uh, to, to the three taverns. And then some of them actually persevered a further 10 miles to the market town called the Forum of Appius. So you look at 15b. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And I think if there ever was a, a COVID-19 year into the lockdown, third wave kind of text <laughs> to be looking at today, it might be that verse right there. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. I hope in, in, the, in the weeks to come, Lord willing, when we can finally gather together again in Christy, Christy Pitts Park and have the Lord's Supper and see one another, we will be thanking God and we will be encouraged, brothers and sisters. That's a good text for today. Or, or think of the other you know, places in the world that are opening up and churches are able to meet now together for the first time in a long time. They're thanking God and they're encouraged. Now, bear in mind, Paul has actually never met any of these people before. Uh, it, it's unclear when Christianity actually spread to Rome. It's probably um, in after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, you have Jewish pilgrims who have come from Rome to Jerusalem, and then they go back to the capital. Um, but it's, uh, it would have been a very emotional experience, I'm sure, for Paul to personally meet the first members of the church to which he had addressed his great theological treatise. He, he had written the book of Romans probably three years before. And at the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and he was encouraged. Verse 16, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So the apostle continues to be a prisoner of the Roman government. He's closely guarded by a single soldier. 
but he has the freedom to have people come into his living quarters and they can, he can discuss, he can teach. And again, we see that in accordance with his principle that the gospel is God's power for, for salvation uh, for the Jew first, then for the Gentile, Paul addresses himself to Jews first in Rome, even though it's the Gentile capital of the world. That this has been his policy all throughout his missionary career. So three days after its arrival, he summons the Jewish leaders in Rome to meet him. And that Luke chooses to end his two-volume work with a scene that focuses with Paul's encounter with Jews. Uh, that just shows how extraordinarily important the issues of this encounter are. That that's a deliberate choice he makes. So verse 17, three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the custom of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. And good people, you'll indulge me, all right, for one minute uh, as we zero in on this verse and recall the prophecy of Agabus. Uh, Acts chapter 21, verse 10. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, we went at that hammer and tongs. There was a lot of Q&A during that meeting. But regardless of what you think about New Testament prophecy, if it has errors in it or not, or if Agabus's prophecy was bang on in all the details, is this what Paul is referring to here? Right In Acts 28, 17, is, is that text about Paul being bound by the Jewish lynch mob in the Jerusalem temple and then handed over to the Romans? This, this has a lot of bearing on how we look at the Agabus prophecy, right? And I would argue strenuously, no, it's not. It's a completely different incident, right? Let me just read to you a couple of different uh, Bible translations of this text that make it clearer, I think, than the NIV does. These are all quite literal translations. So um, 2817 in the ESV version. Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. The NASB, I was handed over to the Romans as a prisoner from Jerusalem. The New King James Version, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And finally, Young's literal translation, men, brethren, I, having done nothing contrary to the people or to the customs of the fathers, a prisoner from Jerusalem was delivered up to the hands of the Romans. So do you see Acts 28 verse 17 refers to Paul's transfer out of Jerusalem uh, in chapter 23, verses 23 to 20, 35, as a prisoner, out of Jerusalem, as a prisoner, and into the hands of the Romans, right? That is into the jurisdiction, the, the processes of the Roman judicial system, into which he was placed by the letter of the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, to Governor Felix, 
We read about that in Acts chapter 23. The, the New Living Translation, that's why they go this way, handed over to the Roman government. In other words, the wording of Acts 28, 17 simply will not allow it to be seen as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Agabus in 2111. It's a different incident entirely. So we might come back to this. I'm sure we will when we go through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but pressing on. Verse 18, they, the Romans, examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected. So I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. So Paul's done nothing against the Jews. Uh, Rome has nothing against him. And, and he has nothing. He has no charge against the Jews, right? So Paul's in every way. He's a loyal Jew here. And, and it was just, it's in order to clarify these points that he's asked for this meeting with these Jewish leaders. Uh, indeed, verse 20, part B, it is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. Now, we've looked at that hope quite a bit in this series, but this is the hope, this is the promise that God would send his Messiah, foretold and foreshadowed in the Old Testament, to rescue and to redeem his people. It's for that hope that Paul's in chains. So even after all the opposition the apostles received from the Jews, Paul still believes that there is a hope for Israel. And we're going to see this hope uh, again in two weeks' time, Lord willing, in Romans chapter 11. Uh, a future time. It's future to us, brothers and sisters, when all Israel will be saved. We'll be looking at that in depth. But Paul wishes to explain that he's a prisoner because he's been seeking to proclaim uh, the realization of God's end time promises to Jews in every place. Paul wants to expound the gospel now to these Jews and show how the resurrection hope of Israel has been fulfilled in the person and in the work of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, in reply to this, the Jewish leaders declare two things. No official letters concerning Paul from Judea uh, have actually reached Rome. And no visiting Jews from Judea have said anything bad against the Apostle Paul. So look at verse 21. They replied, negative, uh, uh, they replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. So negative reports about Christianity have reached these Jews in Rome. I mean, there's actually said that people are talking everywhere against this sect, uh, but they haven't heard any specific criticism of Paul coming from Jerusalem, which makes sense. Uh, there was no particular reason uh, for the Jerusalem Jews to send news about Paul to Rome until he had appealed to Caesar. See, once, once he did that, then the, the, the clock started ticking. But Paul had reached the capital so quickly for that season of the year, right, that it was, it was impossible for other messages to get there before him, all these negative reports. So, and so uh, the Jewish leaders, they express a willingness to hear Paul's views, they call it, and they, they place no obstacle in his way. Uh, to actually, yeah, we'll bring large members of our large numbers of our own community to your house <laughs> to hear what you have to say. We want to hear what you have to say. And so if you put all this together, 
this is this is relatively as as an unprejudiced group of Jews as Paul could hope to be preaching to here. Right. So on the appointed day, they assemble in Paul's lodgings. Verse twenty three b. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, which we discussed at last week's prayer meeting. So I'm not going to get into that here again. And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus from morning to evening. I mean, he's going through the whole Old Testament, right? So this is just like, like uh, along, like Jesus, the resurrected Christ along the Emmaus Road, talking to his disciples in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Or you can think of Paul in Pisidian Antioch in, in, in Acts chapter 13. Same thing. Like reasoning from the scriptures as to why Jesus is the Messiah. But like so many times before, Paul's day-long exposition cuts his audience in two. Verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said. But others would not believe. And that's a very deliberate way to phrase that. Not that they, they didn't believe. No, it's actually, they would not believe. In other words, they were deeply divided amongst themselves and they began to go home, but only after Paul's summing up. And, and, and no one could miss the note of solemn finality in these final words. I mean, it's a, he just lets it all hang out. Paul boldly uh, applies to these Jews words the Holy Spirit had spoken to their forefathers in Isaiah's day. Words which Jesus had quoted to his unbelieving contemporaries. He does it in all four Gospels. And, and with this quote, Luke pretty much closes off his two-volume account. Uh, this is deliberate. And I, I'm, I'm arguing here, implications abound. This is why we're going to go to Romans 9, 10, and 11 in the weeks to come. This is very deliberate. The Jews had eyes to see. They had ears to hear. But the heart, right, the organ of, of thinking and willing and deciding failed to respond to the gospel. So verse 25, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophets, he's quoting Isaiah 6, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. And this linchpin text, Isaiah 6, is one of those texts, brothers and sisters, that holds the whole story of the Bible together. It also occurs in Matthew 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, John 12, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 4, and it underlies all of Romans 11, 7 to 25. And in every one of those texts, the text is concerned with divine judicial hardening. Divine judicial hardening. Let me explain that. God's hardening of human hearts. Right, is an action that renders a person insensitive to God and to his word. And if it's not reversed, it culminates in eternal damnation, the just punishment for sin. 
Now, you may be thinking, what in the world is going on here? Let's, let's go back to the original context, okay, of Isaiah chapter 6 to understand this better. In that chapter, Isaiah the prophet, after being granted a, just a glorious vision of the Lord that's, that's resulted in his repentance and in his cleansing, uh, he offers to serve as Yahweh's messenger. And so he's commissioned. But with this chilling prospect of, of being ignored, of being scorned, all right, of being rejected by the people to whom he is to speak. And, and these are God's covenant people, and they're going to reject him. God commands Isaiah to undertake this ministry in the full knowledge that the results will be negative. They're not going to listen. Indeed, Isaiah's faithful preaching is in some sense the cause of Israel's negative response. So in, in a sense, God himself, through the prophet, hardens the heart of the people. But did you know that, there, that th this assumption that God may judiciously, rightly, justly, harden men and women, that, that frequently occurs in the New Testament. It surfaces in New Testament. Um, most famously, probably, is Romans 9.18. And we're going to look at this later on. But that text says this, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. Or think of 2 Thessalonians 2.11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness now i'm i am the first to admit those are hard hard texts they're, they're, they're certainly not easy to understand i don't have all the answers but but if a superficial reading finds texts like this uh harsh or manipulative, or, or even robotic. Uh, four things. We have to keep four things just constantly in mind. And you can see these four points on page two of your handout just above your map. Let me just go through this quickly. God's sovereignty in these matters is never pitted against human responsibility. Never, ever. Uh, if in your mind, uh, you are pitting those two things against each other, uh, you're going where the Bible does not. Secondly, God's judicial hardening is not presented as the capricious manipulation of a, just an arbitrary potentate, an arbitrary ruler, right? Cursing morally neutral or even morally pure beings. But as a holy condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and be what they themselves have chosen. There's that tension, God's sovereignty, human responsibility. Third, God's sovereignty in these matters can also be a cause for hope, real hope, because if he's not sovereign in these areas, uh, then there's little point in petitioning him for help, right? <laughs> but if he is sovereign, then the pleas of believers throughout uh, the history of the church makes sense. Finally, God's sovereign hardening of the people in Isaiah's day, his commissioning of Isaiah to, a, uh, to apparently fruitless ministry, 
um, is a stage in God's strange work that brings God's ultimate redemptive purposes to pass. And we're going to see this again in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, but we're going to come back to that later. So let's just finish off the chapter. Let's finish off Acts 28, verse 28. And as we see in this verse, God's salvation to the Gentiles is presented here uh, both as a, it's a past fact and as a future success, right? So verse 28, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles in the past, and they will listen in the future. So even as many Gentiles have already heard and believed in the same way, they will continue to respond. And if we think about it, Paul's final words here recall Simeon's paraphrase of Isaiah's promise in Luke chapter 20, verse 30 to 32. Do you remember that? For my, he sees the baby Jesus and he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. They also recall John the Baptist's use of Isaiah's words in Luke 3, 6. All people will see God's salvation. So both texts speak about Jews and Gentiles seeing the salvation of God. It's how Luke begins volume one, and now it's how he ends volume two. They're like bookends, right? But the Jews in Rome have failed to see. Uh, they failed to see because they closed their eyes. Uh, they failed to hear because they closed their ears and their hearts are hardened. Verse 30, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Jew, Gentile, didn't matter. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. As John Stott comments, uh, though Paul's hand was still bound, his mouth was open for Jesus Christ. Though he was chained, the word of God was not. And thus ends the book of Acts. It's on that note that Luke ends this two-volume work. So where do we go from here? Because he's ending things to his, to his opus, right? It, it doesn't really give us a lot of closure. It's very open-ended, apart from Paul remaining a prisoner, right, and his looming trial before Emperor Nero, we never hear about that, uh, we're confronted with this, this uh, matter of Jewish salvation, or rather the lack of it, right? Luke ends the book of Acts with the Jewish rejection of the Messiah and the promise that it's going to go to the Gentiles. Uh, and this, again, this taps into that much broader biblical theme. So in the time we have left, I want to do a quick, quick overview of the salient points of Romans chapter 9. I want you to turn there with me, please. Romans 9. And this, in turn, is going to set us up for next week as we look in depth at Romans 10. And then the week following, Romans 11. As I said before, all these chapters, all three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, are really one unit that deal with one topic the sovereign salvation plan of God for Jews and Gentiles, past, present, future. He, it, Paul lays it all out. Here's what God has done, is doing, will do in the future for both groups. <clears throat> so let's try to just put ourselves into the sandals of a Christian living 25 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, which is when Paul wrote the New Testament book of Romans. Here's the situation. Gentiles galore 
are being saved. Uh, but the glory days of Jewish revival that we read up in, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, they're long past. Comparatively speaking, few Jews confess Jesus of Nazareth as the promised, society, uh, promised Messiah, right? And, and that's the way it's been for 2,000 years. And it stands to reason that the church in the first century would have looked around. They would have looked, they would have looked back to those Old Testament privileges of Israel. All those promises that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, right? Theirs is the adoption of sonship. Theirs, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. The church would look at all of that and, just, and find it astonishing that Israel is now excluded from Christ. Israel is a nation who received all those covenantal promises, but now they're estranged from God. So the thoughtful first century Christian would look around the church and they would count all the uncircumcised Gentiles on the membership roster and they would be inclined to ask two questions. And those questions I've included at the, very at the top of your handout on page one. Have God's covenant promises to Israel failed? Is God unjust towards Israel? Because God was making a lot of promises to Abraham's descendants back in the Old Covenant. Has God reneged on those promises? Is that the kind of God he is? Brothers and sisters, nothing less than God's integrity, his righteousness, his honesty, his goodness, and sovereignty is at stake in these questions, right? God's glory is on the line. And Paul says, no, it's an emphatic no, verse 6 of Romans 9, it is not as though God's word had failed now we need to follow this logic closely why has god's word to israel not failed even though there are comparatively speaking few jews in the new covenant church for not all who are descended from israel are israel that means true israel has never been an issue of mere race of mere dna when you read the Old Testament, Christian, you must understand that. God's promises made to Israel, especially the promises he made to Abraham, the Jewish patriarch, those promises have not fallen to the ground now, haven't fallen to the ground for 2,000 years, unfulfilled, because in God's mind, true Israel has never been an issue, a matter of genetic descent. There was always a discriminating, kind of love taking place among the nation of Israel itself. God made choices. He made electing, discriminating, covenantal choices within Abraham's own family, even between his biological children. He goes on to explain in verses 7 to 9, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac, right? Not Ishmael, Abraham's other biological son. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah, not Hagar, Ishmael's mother, Sarah will have a son. 
And, and just as a side, you said, do you see how important it is that we know our Old Testaments very well, right? If, if we're not familiar with the story of the Jewish patriarchs in the, in the book of Genesis and the circumstances surrounding the conception of their children, we're not going to understand what Paul's talking about here. He's just assuming we get this, right? Ishmael is Abraham's biological son. His mother is Hagar, Sarah's servant. But Ishmael is not the child of promise. It was never going to be through Ishmael that the great covenantal promises to Abraham and his seed were fulfilled. It was always going to be through Isaac. 90-year-old Sarah would give birth to a son. Just very quickly, Genesis 17, 19 to 21, a very important text. God says, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and he will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear you this time next year. And that launches the whole story of the Bible. So we can see God made a sovereign choice that brought Isaac to the fore, a divine choice which made Isaac the recipient of God's special covenantal blessings, not his father's other biological son, Ishmael. And then in verses 10 to 13, Paul goes on to show that this electing principle within the family is true not only in that first generation, but in the second generation as well, between Isaac and Rebekah's children, Esau and Jacob, who are actually twins. Isaac was chosen, Ishmael was not. Jacob was chosen, Esau was rejected. And in the case of the twins, God's choice of Jacob over Esau came before either of them had done anything good or evil. He made that choice when they were still in the womb. So what does that mean? It means this choice by God, this election, must not have been based on one of the brothers being more deserving because of the good works he had performed or would perform. It was based on God's sovereign choice. Their covenantal destinies were decided by God in the womb. Before either had done good or evil, God had already decided who was going to inherit the covenant blessings of Abraham. <clears throat> Why? How can this be? Look at the second part of verse 11 in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Do you, this is very important, do you ever ask yourself, um, why am I a Christian? I mean, we just heard uh, Natalia and, and uh, Armando's testimony. Why are they Christians? You know, why are you a Christian? Why am I a Christian? I mean, there are, there are billions of people in the world, and, and the one thing, that's absolutely essential to have in this life, I have, right? I've been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. My sin has been atoned for. Uh, I may be a guilty sinner, but I am a fully forgiven sinner. So what is the ultimate reason why God saved me? Why have I received the covenantal blessings won by Jesus on the cross and not this other person? Now you know, Christian, it's from this text, right? That God's purpose in election might stand. And, and, and that answer leaves no ground for human boasting. So 
hear me, this, this is the essence of the whole matter. We are forgiven of our sin. We are united to Jesus Christ. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We're members of God's new covenant community, the church, because God in eternity past decided he chose to set his love upon us in his son, Jesus. Unlovable, sinful creatures, though we are, that his purpose in election might stand. There is no more ultimate reason than that. Our salvation is all of the Lord. We, we can boast in no part of it, not, not even the tiniest, tiniest little bit. Salvation is totally due to God's unmerited favor, right? And, and so the only appropriate response to this grace is our eternal praise. And that's what we will be doing for all of eternity. Second question, is God unjust towards Israel? Verses 14 to 21. Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say? Is God unjust? And, and what Paul's referring to here is, 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 on, is God unjust for rejecting individuals, you know, apart from merit? He chooses and, rejected, and rejects apart, you know, based on, on nothing. Is, is God unjust? By doing that, is God acting what against its right? Not at all. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then in the context of covenantal blessing, Paul says, verse 16, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, the temptation, the lie, Satan will be whispering in our ears at this point and over these next verses, I think, is that this doctrine makes God unfair, unloving, and unjust. The lie will be that these verses, the very doctrine of election itself, make God sound like a God without mercy, without compassion. And, and we need to be guarding our hearts against this. Remember, God shows mercy and compassion to those who desperately, desperately need it right? God is not unjust. God, God could never be unjust in electing millions and millions of sinners to salvation while passing over other sinners, because mere justice would have consigned us all to hell. Those are the biblical categories in which we must be thinking. God goes way beyond mere justice and he shows mercy and compassion upon millions who do not deserve it, even at the cost of his dear son's life. How dare we suggest that God is unjust or unfair because he did not choose to save everyone? We're saved by grace. That is the basis of our salvation, God's unmerited favor, and Fairness has nothing to do with grace. I've said this many times before in the context of human salvation, in the context of guilty, God-defying rebels being saved by God from the just penalty of their sin, and all through the substitutionary sacrifice of God incarnate on a wretched Roman cross, we must never use the words fairness and grace in the same sentence. They are antithetical to one another. They are opposing concepts. When Jesus gave his great cry of desolation on the cross, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are we to think that what God is accomplishing in that terrible moment is something human beings deserve? It's our right. It's our due. It's only fair. God forbid. The just condemnation of God hangs over every person's head. God does not confront a whole mass of morally neutral people and say, you go to heaven, you go to hell. You go to heaven, you go to hell. Verse 16, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. That is, salvation does not finally reside in human desire or effort, but in God's mercy. And if God indeed chooses some people for salvation while passing over others, that makes the grace lavished on us, the ones whom he has elected to salvation, all the more glorious. Verse 17, for scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Again, God's hardening is an action that renders a person insensitive to God and to his word. If it's not reversed, it culminates in eternal damnation, the just penalty of sin. But remember, the, the assumption here is that we're not dealing with morally neutral people. This is so important. God's hardening is judicial. God's hardening is judicial. It's the just sentence being executed. He's not, he is not hardening morally neutral people. God may harden if he so chooses, as is his right, but he may also choose to show mercy and compassion to the undeserving, as is his right. And in consequence, men and women believe the gospel. By resisting God's will to release his people from bondage, Pharaoh caused that deliverance to be more spectacular than it otherwise would have been, thus bringing God more glory than if Pharaoh's heart had been soft and if he had relented at Moses' first request. God tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth when I destroy you. But it's crucial, right? We maintain side by side those complementary truths that God hardens whom he chooses, right? He is sovereign. And human beings, because of sin, are responsible for their ultimate condemnation. And if we're not keeping both those teachings in tension, and I'm not saying that I've explained everything perfectly. I don't think the human mind can understand that perfectly. But if we're not keeping both those things in tension, we're, we've distorted. Uh, the teachings of Holy Scripture. God bestowing mercy on some sinners and hardening the hearts of other sinners are not equivalent actions. What I mean by that is God's mercy is given to those who do not deserve it. His hardening affects those who have already, by their sin, deserved condemnation. Those are the categories. Now, there's no doubt about it, right? These are very difficult teachings. Many Christians read these verses and they're honestly confused. Uh, they want to be led by scripture, 
But this doctrine, if it's true, if God has his people from eternity past whom he has elected to salvation and he hardens the hearts of everybody else, then how are we to pray for our unsaved loved ones if this is true, right? What's the point? God's already made up his mind, right? What, what, what good can prayer do? And, and what about free will? Are, are we a bunch of predetermined automatons? What does this doctrine do to evangelism? Many, many Christians have perplexed, honest questions about these matters. And, and, and there are biblical answers for all those questions. I just don't have time to unpack it all in, in this lesson. But that, that's not Paul's concern in this point. Right? How does Romans chapter 9 begin? Look at verse 1 of Romans 9. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience affirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people. He's speaking about Jews, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Though Paul believes in God's sovereign election to salvation, he is not a Christian fatalist. It's so important we see this. He is not an unemotional robot, whatever it will be, will be, right? Paul sees lost souls and he weeps. Paul sees lost souls and he prays. Paul sees lost souls and he evangelizes. He's willing to travel all over the Roman world. He's willing to be beaten and thrown into prison and to be shipwrecked and to suffer all manner of hardships that the gospel might spread. All the while believing God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Those, none of those things are in conflict in Paul's thinking. I want to ask, beloved, does that truth elicit a similar response from us? If not, then we haven't properly understood the doctrine of election as Paul has. And that's okay. I mean, there's always room for Christian growth and understanding and all the teachings of Holy Scripture. I mean, this doctrine particularly, we just need to keep a humble attitude, right? That's open to instruction. Now, you may be saying, Pastor John, I'm having great difficulty believing these teachings could be true because how can God still find fault with his people for not believing, with, with any people for not believing? How are we to resist the will of the omnipotent sovereign God? Well, Paul's anticipated your question. Look at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? And notice Paul comes down on that kind of thinking like a ton of bricks. But who are you? a human being, to talk back to God. So that's the response, right? Shall what is say, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Paul's saying God has the right to deal with sinful, rebellious human beings according to his good pleasure, either to pardon them or to punish them. And human beings are no more in no more of a position to answer back or quarrel with God about this than a vase is to criticize its molder for making it a certain way. Now, it's perfectly okay to come to God with questions about a teaching like this, questions which arise from a sincere desire to understand God's ways with an honest willingness to accept whatever answer God might give. Paul's not denying the validity of such a question, right? These are difficult, difficult matters. As John Stott tells us, it is the God-defying rebel 
not the bewildered seeker after the truth whose mouth Paul is shutting. It's the attitude of the creature presuming to judge the way of the creator, to answer back and to quarrel. That's the attitude Paul is rebuking in this verse. That only shows a spirit of rebellion against God, a refusal to let God be God and to acknowledge our true status as creatures and sinners. But brothers, sisters, on the final day of judgment, as Lord Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, we will look upon the powerful wrath of God as he unleashes his fury against unrepentant sinners. And we will contrast that justice with our own undeserved eternal inheritance. And we will marvel. We will marvel. On that day, we will praise God and we will exalt his name. We will marvel that God in eternity past was pleased to set his love upon us in Jesus Christ, undeserving though we are. We will marvel that God the Son, in obedience to his Father, laid down his life for us and purchased uh, for us so great a happiness, thus distinguishing us from other sinful human beings. And all on the basis of God's unmerited favor, grace, 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 nothing makes clearer the ultimacy of God's grace in salvation than the doctrine of election. And it's always good to appreciate afresh the sovereign electing grace of God in our salvation from sin. It's proper, it's fitting to rehearse to our sinful, wandering, proud, autonomous, hearts again and again the fact that we have no claim on god's salvation mercy whatsoever it's good to really think about that it, it, we so easily forget it don't we that that our salvation from sin is entirely due to god's grace and, and nothing makes this clear than the doctrine of election right it's a glorious glorious teaching of scripture thank god for it though it's often misunderstood it's often maligned often disbelieved it's a glorious, glorious doctrine. But why does God tell us what is electing love in the scriptures? What purpose does it serve for us to know that God says things like, I have mercy upon, upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Why is that kind of stuff in our Bible? I'm going to close with this, brothers and sisters. Verses like that are in our Bibles to encourage us, to encourage us, right? To, to fill us with confident joy as we know that God is determined to bring all those who belong to him to glory. Every single last one. He has decided it. He has purposed it from eternity past. But it also serves to humble us. The doctrine of election takes away our presumption it removes every ground of boasting in ourselves. It cuts the nerve of pride that boasts, boasts over other people as though our, our salvation uh, were owing to anything in us. It destroys that cavalier sense of self-reliance that lets us daily in God's presence as though we were an equal partner in this affair of salvation. And it glorifies God. All these things from the doctrine of election, right? So as we approach this most glorious of passages, Romans 9, 10, and 11, in the next few weeks, 
Yusidi, let's humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and give him all the glory for our salvation. Amen.